0: Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Romans 3 verses 1 through 24. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am not using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's trustfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there, was no, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus.
1: Thank you, Rachel. So, 52 days of the year, somebody sets up coffee in any given room on any given Sunday these days. Somebody else bakes, makes treats for us to enjoy, 52 Sundays out of the year this takes place fifty two Sundays out of the year, the greeters come early to prepare be prepared to welcome uh, us as we come in uh, fifty two times a year fifty two days a year we have uh, people scheduled to count money in the back and collect and make sure that we 're being responsible with the finances uh, fifty two times a year, 52 days a year. We have people who volunteer to serve in the children's ministry. Uh, 52 days out of the year, the worship team comes up, and they come an hour and a half before the service, and they practice, and they prepare. And I was actually thinking today, because our rehearsal went really smoothly today, I'm like, wow, they've got this down. And then I realized it's because they do it 52 times a year. They come out 52 times a year somebody prepares some sort of a message to preach on Sunday, 52 times a year, 52 days a year, at a minimum, that's not counting special services, we have church. And the question that I think this text helps us to get at is why. Why church? Why religion, right? And let's use that word religion. I think that word religion needs to be redeemed. A lot of people... They hear the word religion, it doesn't rub them the right way, but let's just call it what it is, folks. This is religion. These are religious practices that that we engage in 52 days out of the year and and more than that And through the the kinds of activities that we engage in during the week, whether it's community group Bible study or whether it's your own personal devotions. This is religion. These are religious activities that we engage in. And so we got to ask this question, Why? Why? Why church? Why religion? Today, we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans, and it's a series called Good News. Uh, I've been saying each week that we live in a world where I think a lot of us find it's bad news, bad news, bad news, that it seems like you have one or two types of news that you hear today. It's either bad news or fake news. Those are the kinds of news that are on offer for us today. And we come to the book of Romans, and it's very refreshing because the book of Romans announces good news. And it announces a a good news that is bigger, that is greater than any bad news. It is true. It is not fake news. It is good, true news that trumps all fake and bad news. And it is the good news that in the person of Jesus, God himself came for us. God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. He died to forgive us of our sin. He had died to announce that God's kingdom was returning. And he demonstrated that this was the case through his resurrection showing that not even death, not even death can conquer him. If, if you've got death licked, you've got everything licked. And that's what the, that's what the resurrection demonstrates about Jesus and what God was doing through Jesus that, that this is the good news of the gospel and and what this good news points to this good news points to is that God's plan is to put an end to the bad news. God's plan is to put an end to the bad news and and this is actually what emerges in last week's passage in chapter two of course this is a letter uh, when Paul wrote this he did put chapter headings in have you ever written a letter to somebody chapter three right now. That's, that's not how this would have worked. Those were put in, in later, uh, those chapter headings. But back in that section in chapter 2, Paul talks about judgment, about the coming of God's judgment, the coming of God's righteous judgment. And I said that that word judgment is something that really, I think, rubs people the wrong way in our culture, in our, in our uh, sort of modern American suburban culture, our sensibilities. We don't, we just, we don't like that whole concept of judgment Um, But we we think of it as sort of this God who's out to get people, and we don't realize what what God's judgment really is, that it's his justice. It's the coming of his justice. It's the coming, uh, uh, it's him coming to make things right. You know, I shared about the scandal going on in Brazil, this huge government corruption, and the judges are, they're pronouncing judgment against these uh, government officials who had robbed the people of Brazil billions of dollars, and they pronounced judgment. And in doing so, they were bringing justice. And that that's what God's judgment is. It's God putting an end to the bad news, okay, putting an end to the bad news by bringing judgment against those who bring the bad news. And so what we talked about is that when God comes to bring this new age, what we discover in those chapters, chapter two, which is really kind of a A difficult section to handle. Uh, I think it's hard to to take because it hits you very hard. What what Paul's getting at is that, that when God comes to make this new world of good news, when he comes to get rid of bad news and have good news, there's something that's kind of important about this, and it's actually quite obvious and rather logical, and that is how do you have a world of good news? You have good people there. That's that's actually how you get a world of good news. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? Bad news is caused by people doing bad things. Good news is created by people doing good things. And so what we discover in chapter 2 is God saying, what qualifies you, what qualifies you to be a part of that age to come is that you do good. We find in in Romans chapter 2, that it's those who do what is good that will be qualified to be in this world of good news. And the point that Paul is trying to make in that section is he's saying, what qualifies you to be a part of that age of good news is not your religious performance. That's not what qualifies you to be a part of that age that is to come, that age of good news. And this comes through again in this chapter in a couple of different places. In verse 20, it says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Um, Probably a better translation there would be no one will be declared righteous in his sight by the works of the law. Uh, Because what he's getting at here, because what he is earlier on, he's saying actually by doing what the law says, you actually are right before God. He says that earlier. What he's talking about here is the kind of person who thinks it's simply by hearing the law, by sort of by being within the religious cultural environment where you're taught about the law, that by sim- by simply by virtue of being a part of that religious culture, then therefore that makes you right before God. He's saying, no, that doesn't. Just being, being, being a hearer of the law, as he says earlier, a hearer of the law is not what makes you righteous, but a doer of the law. So the same thing here, what he's saying here, is that simply your religious performance does not make you right before God. And so this kind of raises the question, well, why church at all? Why religion? If it isn't what makes you right before God, then why bother? And I, I think this is actually a question that's asked today. This is really the question, in essence, that, that Paul's getting at here in verse 1. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? And, of course, here, what he's getting at is that Jewish culture and Jewish religion were simply one and the same. We tend to separate those out. In that day, they were just completely intertwined. But so for us, we can take this and apply this in our own sense. Well, in the, in the same sense, what's the point of, of, of circumcision? What's, and when Paul talks about circumcision there, he's talking about it. Uh, when he refers to circumcision, he uses it as a way of getting at the entire uh, Jewish religious culture. Um, it's a little bit like if I talk about how an army is going to put boots on the ground, right? They're going to go into a country, put boots on the ground. I don't mean all they're going to do is just drop boots on the ground, right? It's a way of getting. There are going to be boots on the ground, but it's a way of getting at this entire, well, this entire army with tanks and you know whatever else may come. And similarly, when ta- Paul talks about circumcision, it's a way of getting at the entire religious culture of of Judaism. And what he's saying is that that is not what makes you right before God, simply being a part of that religious culture. And so then that raises this question, well, then what's the point? What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What what value is there in circumcision? So then for us, again, this raises that question for us, why religion? Why church? And again, this is a question that I think people ask all the time in our society. A lot of people. Why? Why religion? Why church? Why would you even be a part of that? And I think for some people, at, at best, at best, religion is just a waste of time. <laughs> at best, religion is a waste of time because look, I mean, we are busy people, right? We're busy, busy, busy. We go all week. We go all week, and then the weekend comes. Like, when are you going to mow the lawn? You know, when are you going to get a haircut? Right? I mean, I need, actually, I need a haircut, right? When, when are you going to get these things done? When are you going to have time to relax? When are you going to have time to, to catch up on your Netflix show that you love? I mean, you, 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 you know, we're so busy that it just seems like religion is kind of just a waste of time. At best, that's what people think. <clears throat> At worst, religion, we almost have a, some people have sort of a visceral reaction to it. Like religious people, I, 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 don't, I don't know about organized religion, almost sort of negative connotation. So this, this question is a, a question which is very much live and well in our culture today. And it's an important one for us to be able to address. Why religion? Why church? And I think part of the problem here, again, some of the misunderstanding in our culture is precisely because people have at least subconsciously come to believe, well, yeah, religion is what makes you right with God. Being a part of church, being a part of all of these activities, this makes, you, this makes you right with God. And when people have that attitude, it can create an air of superiority amongst religious people, right? You, you, religious people start thinking, well, I go to church. Good people go to, That's what good people do. So there's us good people, us church-going people, and then there's all those bad people that don't go to church, right? Because that's what, at least at a subconscious level, we feel like, well, I went to church. I must be right with God. I'm participating in these religious activities. Clearly, I'm part of God's people. And so then this air of superiority can come where people, again, there's us church people who go to church, there's good people, and then there's those bad, you know, people who don't go to church. And so then people on the outside, they look at that and they're like, that is incredibly superficial. Like, really? Like, that? that's what makes you right with God? And of course, when an outsider looks in and says that, that doesn't make anything. you I mean, you think that just because you're part of church and all that makes you a good person, that makes you right before God, uh, and they're sort of critical of that, they're exactly right. That's what Paul's saying. Paul, Paul goes back in, in the verses that immediately precede this, uh, verse, let's see, verse 25, he says this, he says, circumcision has value, right here again, that whole religious tradition, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So he's getting a look at, well, look, I mean, that religious stuff is good if you actually do what God says, but if you don't, it's worthless. So again, the question then is, well, why religion? Why church? And here's what we need to understand. Religion itself, on its own, is completely worthless. But what can happen through it is of infinite value. Religion itself, just itself, is worthless. But what can happen through it, what God can do through it, is of infinite value. And I want to highlight three things that emerge from this text about what our religious. Uh, Practices can do that are of infinite value. First of all, religion can convict us of our sin. Verse 20 says, therefore, no one will be be declared righteous in his sight by the works of the law. Again, I think he's getting at no one will be declared righteous in his sight by simply being a part of these religious practices. But rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. He's saying, now listen, when those religious practices draw attention to an awareness of your own sin, now we're on to something. What religion does is it convicts us of our sin. And here's here's what we we have to understand is that is it coming to an awareness of your own sin is a prerequisite to wholeness. That wherever you are personally in your own life, uh, if you're in a place where the reality is you feel quite broken... Uh, you You are hurting in a number of different ways uh there are There are a number of prerequisites to to becoming whole, but one of the prerequisites to finding wholeness is becoming aware of your own sin, being convicted of your own sin uh, I, I, I think that in any in any any marriage for example, maybe your marriage is struggling. And you're trying to figure out, how how are we going to get our marriage to work? How are we going to get over these difficulties and challenges and brokenness? And I can tell you that the number one thing that needs to happen in that marriage is that the two individuals need to become aware of their own sin. They start looking at themselves and say, "I, I see where I've fallen short. I just had a conversation with somebody in our church just recently, and it was very encouraging to me because this individual was just talking about, boy, you know what? I, I, these are some things that I really need to fix in my marriage. I need to do a better job at this. I was so encouraged by that. Because that kind of honesty, that kind of humility, that willingness to look at ourselves, that willingness to look at our own issues and say, this, this is what needs to be fixed, that is a prerequisite to wholeness. I hope that we can create a culture of that in our church. Create a culture where we're comfortable admitting, boy, I'm I, I'm messing up in this respect. This is my sin. These are my issues. I hope we can create that kind of culture because it's a prerequisite for any kind of healing. Any kind of wholeness is, is an awareness of it. Denial. Denial, denying your own sin is the enemy of salvation. It's the enemy of wholeness. It's the enemy of freedom. Is when you when you minimize. What's going on, what you're doing when you minimize that, when you justify it, when you come up with excuses for it, that is the enemy of freedom, of wholeness, of salvation, of deliverance. And so what religion does, what religion can do is convict us of our sin, right? That's well, That's what's going on. That's what Paul's trying to do in this passage here. That's why he goes and, and spends a lot of time just talking about how sinful we are, right? These verses... Uh, 11 through 18, where he quotes from the book of Psalms. And his whole point is just to sort of drive home an awareness of our our sinfulness. And that's why we read this. That's why we do this in church. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves; their tongues practice deceit. I don't know about you, but that, thats definitely true of me. There are times when my—there are times when my throat is an open grave. And that imagery—I mean, it, what it's saying is that death comes out of your mouth. Isn't that true that sometimes what comes out of our mouths is—it's Death, it kills, it destroys. I know it's true for me. And I know that the way death can come out of a person's mouth, I think it can happen in a number of different ways. Sometimes, I'll give you just kind of two ways in which I think death can come out of a person's mouth. Death can come out of a person's mouth like a machine gun. And death can come out of a person's mouth like a poisoned martini. Two ways of killing somebody. You can shoot them with a machine gun or you can slip something in their martini. And I think that our words bring death through both of these means. Sometimes death can come out of our mouth in the form of a machine gun. The words that come out, they come out like like bullets. And I think that's a great illustration because sometimes you'll say something and you want to take it back. But it's like pulling the trigger on a gun and trying to, can I get the bullet back in the barrel? It comes out and it's like a machine gun, the kinds of things that we say to one another in a place of anger and a place of frustration that our our throats are like are like open graves. That's one way in which death can come out of our mouths. Another way in which death can come out of our mouths is, is like a poisoned martini. Like in the, in the Bond movies, you know, in the Bond movies, it seems like if somebody gets poisoned, you know, they slip something slip something in their drink, and in Bond, it's always martini. So that's why I'm using that as a, an example here. But, but you, you slip something in the martini, and then you give them the martini, and it seems like, oh, well, you're giving them this wonderful drink, this nice drink, but it actually kills. Isn't it true that sometimes our words, they can almost come across like, I think, were they being nice? but it's passive-aggressive. That's what passive-aggressive language is all about. We say something that it seems like maybe they're being nice, but underneath it, there's poison. I was just talking with a friend of mine who told me that her mother-in-law said to her, oh, my goodness, look at you. You've done a great job. You've lost so much weight. You don't have that much left to lose. Poisoned martini. It seems nice. I mean, just think of all these ways in which we use our words, and what comes out of our mouth is is nothing more than death, an open grave. And you see, the, the, when we read this, it convicts us of this. That's why we're talking about it in church, is to convict us of this. To say, yeah, that was me. That was me this past week. I, I laid out a machine gun. I poisoned a martini. That was... That was me this past week. That's, that's what we do in church. That's why we, we talk about these kinds of things. Religion convicts us of our sin. It convicts us of the root of our sin, which is a lack of reverence for God. This comes out in verse 18, right? He goes on and on and on about, about our sinfulness. We are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark our way, the way of peace they do not know. And then he sums it all up, right? What is the root cause of this? Where does all of this death come from? And he says very simply, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So when we come to church, the idea is to convict us of this. That's why we sing songs like the first one that we sang this morning, Come Ye Sinners. Don't you love that? I mean, coming to church, what a... Oh, it's such a happy day. I just love it here. It just make me feel good. The first song, Come Ye Sinners. Oh, right. <clears throat> Thanks for reminding me. Yes, exactly. That's right. It might as well say, Come Ye Losers. It doesn't sing as well, but maybe we should try that. That's why we sing songs like this, that they convict us of our sin, because I've, as I've said before, Jesus isn't interested in... in in giving you morphine for your soul. He's not interested in just giving you pain medication that <clears throat> allows you to, to kind of forget about the real issues. He's interested in healing your soul. That's why when I look for songs, I'm not looking for songs that just kind of make you feel good about yourself. I'm looking for those songs that will dig deep and will identify the real problem. That's why we sing a song like, Oh, Great God, that we just sang, Oh, Great God of Highest Heaven, to allow us to, to elevate God, to remember that He is the one who is, who is holy. He is the one who is worthy of our worship because, you see, when we begin to hold God in the correct esteem, this affects the way we live our lives, This is why the seasons of the church are helpful. This is why Advent and Lent are seasons that can help us to convict us of our sin, to wake us up from our slumber. We're so easily at being distracted and not thinking about these things. But Advent and Lent are seasons which allow us to focus on the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our own hearts and our need for deliverance, our need for salvation. So (coughs) religion on its own is worthless. But what God can do through religion is of infinite value. The first thing that religion can do is convict us of our sin. And then secondly, religion points us to the one who can free us from our sin. Beginning in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus or through the faithfulness of Jesus in all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, let me just unpack really quickly In outline what's happening here. One of the things that Paul does throughout these early chapters is he starts to plant seeds, which he will then unpack later on. That's why I don't necessarily dig into everything, because Paul's almost like a a good movie writer, where a movie writer will drop a little hint uh, at the beginning of the the movie, and then later on, oh, remember the, you know, whatever, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. So that's why I don't get into everything now, because it's going to come up later on in the letter. But let me just kind of just briefly explain what 's going on here in verses twenty one through twenty four he 's talking about justification what, what is it that makes you right before God? What is it that makes you right before God? and again, what we 've seen is that is that what makes you right before God is being a good person that 's what Paul talks about in chapter two it 's not your religious performance <clears throat> excuse me it 's not how successful you are uh, in your employment. he talks about it's, it's being a good person because a good person is what, you know, if you're going to have a, a world of good news, you've got to have good people. The problem, as we saw, is that nobody's good. And so if you're going to have this world of good people, but you need good people there, well, what do you have to do? You've got to take bad people and make them good. And that's the heart of, of the gospel. That's what he's getting at here. All have sinned and fall short of glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption here is talking about, what we're getting at here is is we see the forgiveness of God in this. Just by virtue of his grace, just because of his love for us, he forgives us of whatever we have done. He he forgives us of our sin, but then he also sets to free us from our sin. That's what redemption is, to, to buy us out of this world Of sin. And so, what he's saying is that when we put our faith in Christ, when we put our trust in Him, and this is the point, you can do that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And when we put our faith in him, then his grace comes and not just forgives us, but begins to work in us. Now, as Paul will say, it's a process. It has ups and downs. It doesn't happen overnight. But the point is that the very power of God, grace is not just favor. We think of grace as divine favor. It's also divine power. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying it's the power to begin to shape you into the person you will one day be. This is important. Paul has to bring this up because it's clear that there are some in the Christian community that have accused him of being, well, basically teaching that you can kind of do whatever you want, teaching what is sometimes known as antinomianism, anti-law, this idea that because, because God is so gracious... And that his glory is seen in his grace. In other words, if, if you want God to be glorified, you need to take a look at his grace. That God is most glorified when he, when he shows his grace upon his people. And so then people started thinking, well, wait a minute. If, if what glorifies God the most is when he has to show us his grace, well, then maybe we should just keep sitting. If anyway, I just keep sinning, then he just keeps forgiving me, keeps forgiving me, and that glorifies him. And and although that's, there's, that's, there's a truth to that, Paul's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. That, that's what's going on here in verses uh, 7 through 8. Uh, someone might argue, um, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? We'll come to that weeks from now. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported As saying, wait, excuse me. Why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, "Let us do evil that good may result." So, what he's getting at is people thinking, "Well, let's just keep doing, let's do what's wrong, because then that will highlight God's remarkable grace and glorify Him." And Paul, what Paul wants to say is, "Look, grace is not just divine favor; it's divine power." God is glorified not only through his forgiveness of you, God is glorified through his deliverance of you. The grace of God brings glory to him when it works in you and brings freedom in you. And, and as Paul will say later on, he's like, wait a minute, well, why would you keep sinning? That's precisely what he's delivering you from. It wouldn't even make any sense. When we talk about God save me, God save me, what we're saying is save me primarily from my sin. And so it wouldn't make any sense to say, well, maybe I should just keep sinning so that God's grace can come upon me. No, he's like, that's exactly what he's rescuing you from. The heart of the Christian faith is, is not just that God forgives you of your sin. It's that he wants to free you from it. And to me, I don't know about you, but there is so much hope in that. There's so much hope in that knowing that as I put my faith in Christ, I can trust that he's going to work in me. He's going to begin to bring change in me. It's not going to be perfect in this life, but I can cling to that. I can hold on to that, and I can look forward to that day when God completely frees me of my sin, and I live exactly as he, would, as he has called me to live. And we come to church to remind us of. We come to church to remind us of this, to convict us of our sin, but then to point us to the one who can free us from this. Paul's saying that's, of course, what the Scriptures have always been about. Verse 21, this is such an interesting verse. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. It's kind of an interesting statement there. What he's, he's saying, again, what he's getting at is that God's faithfulness is not simply to the Jewish cult, religious cultural uh, tradition. It's not just for them, okay? It's not just for them who have the law and have established this entire religion around the law. He's saying this, this faithfulness of God is not just for them, but that law pointed to that in the first place. And so the idea, again, is that that the advantage of religion is that we have this. We have, we have the scriptures that tell us and remind us and point us to the fact that not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we are, we are free. We have the opportunity for God to work in us and deliver us. And so, again, what, what is church all about? It's, it's about convicting us of our sin, but then pointing us to the one who will bring deliverance in our lives. That's why that's why one of our core values is being gospel centred. That's why one of our core values is basically Jesus, that Jesus is at the center of everything that we do. This is why, as you have all learned, I am a one-trick pony. I'm a one-trick pony, that, that every Sunday I basically say the same thing. I try to get it, come at it from a different angle, maybe apply it a little differently, but I basically say the same thing. I am a one-trick pony, and that is that what I want to do is point us to Jesus, to the hope that we have in Jesus. And listen, if you come to church and if you come to church and the pastor does not point you to Jesus, that would be like going to a Millie Vanilli concert and not hearing blame it on the rain. That would be like going to a Celine Dion concert and not hearing, My heart will go on. That would be like going to a vanilla ice concert and he doesn't sing Ice Ice Baby. That would be like going to a Bob the Builder concert and not hearing, can we fix it? You come to church, it's a one-hit wonder. It is the gospel because religion itself is worthless. But religion that points us to Jesus is of inestimable value. That's why all the songs that we sing, they, they point us to Jesus. Again, that's why the seasons of the calendar are helpful. Easter, Christmas, Advent, all of these seasons help to remind us of the heart of the gospel. Religion convicts us of sin. It points us to what can free us from sin. And thirdly, it sends us out on mission to eradicate sin. We find this, interestingly enough, in verse 2. Again, beginning in verse 1, what advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? So again, getting back to this question of religion. What is the point of it? Verse 2, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, this word entrusted, it's an interesting word here. Uh, One scholar uses this analogy. The word entrusted is a word, he he says, it's, it's a little bit like this, and he explains a time when he was traveling from England to New Zealand, and a friend of his had family living in New Zealand, and they had, had a necklace that was incredibly valuable that they wanted to get to New Zealand. It was so valuable that they did not trust it in mailing it, right? So they asked him, they said, will you, will you take this and give it to them when they get to New Zealand? And what he says is they were entrusting that necklace to him. In other words, when somebody entrusts something to you, it's not necessarily even for you that you are a messenger, you are a deliverer. And this word here, what Paul's getting at here is that the people of Israel, and then of course now us as as Christians, we are entrusted with the words of God. In other words, the reason that we are called is to, is to go out on mission. That's what it means to, to be a Christian. I think one of the things, you know, we get all caught up in this idea of what does it mean to be chosen by God? Who are the chosen ones and, and all this? And, and the problem is we tend to think of being chosen entirely in terms of, like, I'm chosen, you know, for myself. Like, I get delivered from my sin. But actually what we discover is that the language of being chosen and calling is as much, if not primarily, about being called for mission. That's why even when you look in, 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 in Acts chapter 9 when it talks about Paul's conversion, sometimes, and people will put headings in the, in, before that in the Bible. Uh, scholars will put headings, and there's all these debates on, should it be Paul's conversion or should it be Paul's calling? And I would, I would err on calling because that's primarily what this is about. And so what we do when we come to church is we remind ourselves, we remind ourselves that we are called to be on mission. Uh, Just just a couple of days ago, I'm currently going through the elder development process with David Lee and Ray Rodriguez. We just sort of began that process to explore uh, whether or not eldership is, is something that God might be calling them to. I would encourage you to be praying for us during that process. One of the things that we were looking at, we were looking at a book which talks about the mission of God, and it uses this analogy—or not analogy, uses this example. It talks about how when Jesus calls his disciples, when he calls his disciples, the first thing he says to him, he doesn't come up and say, "Come with me, and I will teach you all the commandments." Uh, come with me, and I will teach you. Um, you know, how to start a church service. He says, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. Then, in the Synoptic Gospels on, on both ends, at the beginning of his ministry, it's I will make you fishers of men. And then at the end of his ministry, it's go and make disciples of all nations. That the whole thing is about mission. I think it's really interesting that that's the first thing that he says to them. Come, I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, do we even think of it that way when we talk about <laughs> bringing somebody to Jesus? Here, come, come follow Jesus and he's, you're going to work with Jesus to help bring, you know, healing to people in this world. Is that generally how we pitch the gospel in the first place? Interesting, isn't it? Because when Jesus calls them, he's saying, come, I will make you fishers of men. We often think that, you know, to be a missionary, first you've got to, you know, come and, and get discipled and get trained and, and then and then after a while, once you're a mature Christian, then God sends you out. We see that from the very beginning, before they really even knew what they were doing, he's calling them to go out on mission. He sends them out to pr- proclaim the kingdom of God. They don't really even know what they're talking about. They come back. They're all bumped and bruised. Sometimes they don't get things right. It's a reminder to us that we're all called to live on mission, whether we know what we're doing or not. The reality is none of us do. We don't. Truthfully, I mean, I've been to seminary. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, living on mission, But if you're waiting to get to that point where you're going to feel like I'm ready to go, it's not going to happen. Right? We come to church to remind us of this calling to live on mission. That's, that's why we sing at the end of the service, we're going to sing a song called, O Church, Arise. And it's a song that's about calling us, calling us to go out, calling us to be the ones who have been entrusted with the very words of God. Friends, why religion? Why do we gather here on Sunday mornings? Religion itself on its own is completely worthless, but what God can do through it is of inestimable value. And I I say that, I think this is a good time to bring this up because, look, summer is, is... is a time when it's easy to get out of the habit of going to church. Isn't that true? I mean, summer's just a time when, you know, it's beautiful out. There's all kinds of fun things to do. And I think it's really easy for us to get out of that habit. And it's going to be really easy to get out of that habit if we really don't understand why we're coming in the first place. I mean, if we're coming because, well, that's just kind of what we've always done. If we're coming because, well, that's what my parents always did. If we come because, well, that's what my friends do. That's only going to take us so far. We've got to remember that, that the religion itself is worthless, but what it can do is of an inestimable value, that, that every week we need to come here and just be reminded, be humbled, be humbled of our own sin acknowledge that. We need to come and be reminded that we have a God who has come to forgive us of our sin, to free us of our sin, and we need to come each week being reminded that God is calling us to go out as his agents of renewal. you pray with me? Dear God, we praise you for your grace. We praise you that you have not just left us here. We praise you that you long for us to to become more and more who you've called us to be. God, we praise you that we don't just live in a place of static living. But God, that your power is available to bring renewal in us. And as we look to you, as we trust in you, God, we can know that that you, you are working in us and you will bring healing and that you have tremendous purpose for us. God, I pray that each person here would know that you have created them with a purpose, that you have visions and plans for them that they could never even imagine. God, I pray that as we meet here, Lord, we would not just be going through the motions. God, I pray that you would be at work, that you would be bringing real change in every service. We pray this in Jesus' name.